0: hey everybody welcome back in. It's another studcast. David Summers here with the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller. It's the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. It's 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Please welcome the originator of the studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the super stud cast. We step back into the ring back into time with the Tennessee stud. Ron Fuller. What's up, Ron?
1: I'm here, my man. Ready to go, man. In in good health and uh, very happy to be there. Uh, Looking forward to this one today. We're in a very good time frame, man. It's just going to, it's crazy. I'm looking a little bit ahead at uh, future cards and wow, this is going to be fun for a while, you know? I mean, uh, there's really a lot going on in in this time frame and things have gotten kicked off and I'm really, um, really pleased uh, that uh, that we are in the 1977 and uh, we're talking about a business that's uh, geez, really beginning to look like one of the best small territories in the history of the sport. So uh, and uh, it's easy, easy to talk about these. It's easy to talk about it. And, uh, and you know, we're we've got a lot of new people hitting in this
0: one. And it's uh, it's just I think uh, fans are going to really enjoy this. Oh, without a doubt, and it's it's crazy to think that we're already at the end of January as we record this. It's January twenty sixth, and it's a it's a very special day. It's my birthday, so oh, anyway, I was well, gonna well. see if you were gonna sing at some point during the show, and you could wait till the end of the show, or
1: uh,
0: but I'll, I'll just sit here. I'm I'm good. Oh, but, okay. Okay. Anyway, we'll so
1: acknowledge you in one way or another,
0: man. Yeah. Well, I I appreciate that. <laughs> don't don't knock yourself out. But any, anyway, this is this is going to be I've, – I've, I've kind of checked over some of the stuff that you sent me that you were going to be talking about today, and I think this is going to be a pretty cool show. But I do want to mention Super Studcast number 37 before we get going. Cowboy Bill Watts has joined in on this, the great tribute to Danny Hodge. The entire three-plus hours of the deep dive into the life and times of the legend Danny Hodge is now available At tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Ron has also added about seven minutes of actual audios from two of the Southeastern TV shows of 1975. You'll hear Ron Wright, the stud, the legendary Danny Hodge in this fantastic super studcast. And I always get a kick out of your imitations of the late legendary Ron Wright.
1: Yep, he's in this one, man. A little bit of him. Uh, he's, he's, he's actually doing, uh, doing battle with, uh, Danny Hodge. And, uh, wow, I feel sorry for him just talking about it. (laughs)
0: Well, at least once in that show, I hope you do that line about the Tennessee dog whooping. So we'll we'll uh, we'll hope for that and look forward that to that. And plus two, another reminder: the awesome Southeastern Continental Five Pack is still breaking records. Fans can't get enough of those sixty matches, twelve total hours of some of the greatest old school wrestling ever. To me, one of the cool parts is all the interviews. So it is really well worth it. Five tremendous DVDs in one pack, full of stars, matches, interviews from southeastern Pensacola. Continental's illustrious past is on display, and you can have it. Get yours now at tnstud.com. Click stud store and get 12 hours for only $39.99. That price includes shipping Ryan, I bet you got something to say about this offer because this is really cool, and to me, it's amazing that you you saved all of this and you somehow came, however you came up with it, and it's still preserved.
1: Yes, and it is it is really remarkable. Uh, five disc uh, package, and wow, uh, it's got a lot of different people that it has the uh, some of the it has the first encounter ever between Hulk Hogan. And Andre the Giant on uh, Dothan Television, in which there's a, it's an actually an arm wrestling contest that yep. turns into something quite a bit wilder, and uh, you know uh, it's got a- everybody uh, from Terry Gordy and uh, Michael Hayes, and it's 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 just really loaded with uh, with stars, uh, stars of the future at that point, and uh, and a lot of great stars that were really already there at that time. So yeah, that, you know fans and. And it's really funny about this one, Dave. I have yet to see a single person that has purchased this that says they don't like it. I mean, they're all like, wow, this is unbelievable. So, you know, uh, uh, I'm really proud of it. uh, And I'm hoping that we're going to be able sometime in this year to come out with another five pack. But this first one is really good. Uh, We pulled it off for a while. But uh, we put it back just before Christmas, and gosh, I think it's doing maybe bigger than it did last year. And the first year it was out. So, uh, yes, yeah, doing doing very well. And I highly recommend it to, to, to fans out there. I don't have any problem. People say, well, what do you think, Ron? Well, uh, you know, I think it's pretty darn good. And obviously, mm-hmm. those people that are buying it and those people that are watching it, uh, and, and, you know, for fans out there that are really into wrestling, especially that old school stuff, yeah. I don't see any reason why you wouldn't want to own some of this. I mean, uh, you know, it, you sit and watch it when you want to. You got some friends uh, that are older people and, uh, have been around that when they see this, people that see this, uh, they all say it just takes me back instantly. So I think it's something uh, well worth, uh, considering if you are a, uh, Classic uh, collector of any type of uh, videos, uh, DVDs.
0: These are five that are probably really worth it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, There's modern-day wrestling, and then there's this, which is real history, and folks love to go back in time. And this was when wrestling was really wrestling. And if you missed it last week, the last Studcast Ron, was another really terrific show. I was surprised with a special... I'm sorry. I'm gonna do this do this paragraph again. My apologies. Here we go. And if you missed it last week, the Studcast from last week was another terrific show. I surprised you with a special guest. Les Thatcher was with us for the show. That was really awesome. That was really cool. Were you really surprised by that? Oh yeah,
1: man. Uh, you know, and what a great idea. You know, because it's he was in he was involved so highly, in, in a lot of things that we yep. talked about last week, couldn't have brought him on in a better episode. And uh, you know, and and geez, I think Les got all fired up himself, man. He was <laughs> like, Wow. I d- thought I maybe gonna have to, you know, uh, call him up after over and say, Les, have you calmed down yet? You know, I oh, know.
0: <laughs> he, well, he, he's he, such a huge part of the stories that you're telling and the era that you're that you're talking about in, in Knoxville. Fans all over the world have sent compliments about studcast number one eighty three. And just in case you didn't know and you want to do some catching up, if you've got a big road trip, this is perfect. You can get every stud cast and every super stud cast ever done on Ron's website at TNstud.com. That's TNstud.com. All right, stud, let's get saddled up. Where are we riding to today?
1: Well, last week, Dave, uh, we did have a lot of fun with Les. That's for darn sure. And and in fact, uh, he was also talking about my uh, Texas Death lumberjack match on January 23rd of 1977 with Big Bad John. And uh, it was a milestone of a match for me, really, as a wrestler. Uh, It turned out to be a groundbreaking day in my career, almost, I would say. It's the first time ever I found myself doing something I'd never done in a match before. And fans loved it right off the bat, and uh, and I began to strut and shake my head. And the uh, the Coliseum, uh, Knoxville, big crowd, man. There was a little bit of an explosion there a couple of times. And uh, by golly, the stud strut was born on that in that <laughs> match, you know. And uh, and it kind of became my trademark from that match on. Yeah, I thought I had many matches which I didn't do a little <laughs> bit of strutting in. So, uh, you know, that all, that all Im- came out of last week, uh, which is the January 23rd and, uh, and Liz and I got to talking about it and, and we we're interacting so much and uh, having such a good time telling stories about it and our thoughts about that match. Uh, you know, that, uh, I, I forgot, we forgot to get into who won the match. We oh. never, we never said who won the match, uh-huh. you know, and, uh. And and it, and it fit really well uh, in last week's show, and it does this week's as well. You know, I want to start today by finishing the story of that match, and then that's going to lead us right into today's training. And in this today's training, we're going to be wearing that Booker hat, and we're going to be discussing managers like Big Bad John, who I was wrestling in this match, and uh, and I'm going to answer a great Booker question: How many managers are too many? Right, so. You know, and uh, and this is is a dilemma for some bookers. But um, you know, we're gonna get into that today. So and then we're gonna talk about the huge World Junior Heavyweight Championship match that's gonna take place in this particular stud cast. It'll be on Sunday, January thirtieth, nineteen seventy-seven, and it's Jimmy Golden against Nelson Royal for the World Champion Junior Heavyweight Championship match. And we're gonna also discuss on that card the quarterfinals of the Cadillac tournament uh, that's really been uh, going for like two months now, and a Southeastern Tag Championship match all in this one afternoon. Uh, And the follow of that will be the great TV of Saturday, January 29th. Obviously, that television promoted card that uh, we're going to be talking about. We're going to talk then later about the results of that card. We'll talk about the attendance. We'll even get into a little bit of a heated discussion it's going to happen between Don Carson and Ronnie Garvin on the TV show of that Saturday, the ninth. In the Learning Tree today, uh, we're going to answer about how Knoxville crowds compare with other cities its size in 1977, which I think was a great question. It's very appropriate now. We're in that time frame. And uh, I think it was, when I got to thinking about it and, and, and uh, all the different things that this entailed, I think we got a great learning tree today. We're going to jump into the Florida territory a little bit and get some comparisons even. So so I'm really looking forward to it, man.
0: Sounds like another great one today, Stud. All right. So my horse is saddled up and ready to ride. His name is Hoof Hearted. Say it carefully. And Stud, be forewarned that if you insult my horse on today's show, I may be forced to turn heel on the show before it's over. So uh, I'm just uh, giving you fair warning. Wait a
1: minute. Yeah, I think wh- that's a, now I'm gonna try to say that, but I I believe there's a little bit of trickery in this,
0: in this Just this this horse. Out. H-O-O-F he's he's, H-O-O-F, hearted.
1: he's right. hoof hearted,
0: right? H E A R T E D. Hoof hearted. There you oh, go. Oh
1: boy. We better be he's careful a- with that
0: one. He stinks, I
1: think. You know, I well, tell you, man. Uh, you you are you yeah, that's your second horse you've had that's that I'm, smells I'm,
0: a little bit. I'm turning heel before this is over. So, all right. So let's get to the show and let's, let's bring this to a stop. Who did, who did win the Texas death lumberjack match from last week's stud cast and how many managers is too many in a territory? Does every wrestler, every wrestler need a manager?
1: Oh, well, gosh, man. I, You know, there was a heck of a lot of them that did when it came time to do interviews. Uh-huh. You know? But <laughs> yeah. I don't know that all of them did, but there were a heck of a lot of them that did. Right. But to answer the first part of that question is who won the last week's match between me and Big Bad John? And uh, that's going to open the door, obviously, to today's training. So I won the match, and I won it with the Fuller Leg Lock. Uh, Big Bad John uh, bragged on last week's show in that audio clip he was in about walking away from my leg, leg lock the week before. Uh, in this match, uh, since Garvin wasn't involved and uh, no one stopped me from finishing the job from the week before, I got the toehold this time, and uh, and they took old Big Bad John out on the stretcher that night. And uh, it, it ended Big John's three-month run as Ronnie Garvin's manager, and, and it ended the, all the preparation, the bodies for hell, and uh, Garvin... <laughs> Pressing people's throats and, uh, oh. John never returned to Southeastern wrestling. After this match this is the last match he ever had for Southeastern.
0: Well, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if you know this, but I'm going to miss big bad, John, the delicate and sensitive way he prepared his opponents for burial and respectfully hung them up to die. It's hard to replace a fan favorite like big bad, John. Yeah. All right. So yeah. So what's going to happen to Garvin now? And uh, does this have any bearing on today's training question about how many managers are too many?
1: Well, you're just full of questions, Dave. You know, uh, (laughs) you better slow that hoof hearted down a little bit, you know, and let me catch up, man. You know, uh, so Garvin Garvin is going to remain, yes, one of the top, the two top single heels in Southeastern. Uh, Rob and I, you know, at this point, we've been grooming him because You know, we we knew that uh, Big John was going to be going. And we spent some time trying to convince Ronnie that he could do his own talking. And, uh, you know, he'd had in his entire career in the United States up to this point in his life, had other wrestlers and tag team partnerships that always handled the interviews, And he still had that very strong Montreal uh, Canadian, that French Canadian accent but we knew he was ready to do his own thing and become a very successful, complete wrestler in and out of the ring. So he was then going to get his chance to prove it, not just to Rob and Rob and I, but more importantly, to himself. Uh, his manager is gone, so that brings us up to uh, putting on those Booker hats and deciding how many managers were too many for a territory at one time. So the issue with this question Is how how does a wrestling manager affect every person in the crew? And uh, that's the big critical part of having a manager. Obviously, the total payroll, a percentage of the total payroll, was split in every event, in some form or fashion, between the entire crew. So everyone getting a payoff had to wrestle to get it, except for one guy, or two guys if you had two managers, and those were the managers. So, you know, that manager, he had to earn his payoff with his mouth, not his body. You know, <laughs> I mean, he, he earned it in a different way, but he he had to earn it. It was important. So Big Bad John, he had also worked some matches on occasion. He wasn't just truly a manager. But our problem was either way after Stomper's arrival, we had a second manager to pay. And it's difficult to have one manager taking a payoff each night, but my, it's absolutely insane to have two of them, in my opinion especially if you're in a small territory like Southeastern was. We had Don Carson, and now we had big, bad John and Carson. So one of them had to go. Actually, John had given up his spots many weeks earlier, for those who recall the circumstances from a prior stud cast. I'm not going to mention any names, but John John had already, his cast was died, uh, so to speak. And the Mongolian Stomper, he needed a mouthpiece much more than Ronnie Garman did. For sure. So we were steadily building a stronger crew at this point, and it was extremely important to make sure quality talent got a quality payoff. Uh, It was Rob and my goal, and both of us as bookers, to bring in the best talent we could find and continue to make our crews and our territory better as time went on. So let's take a look at how we were doing with these crews and improving the crew since December of 1976 when I brought Rob back to uh, Southeastern, and we became co-bookers. Mm. We'd added Bob Armstrong in this time frame. We'd added Dick Steinborn. We'd added the new gladiator, Jim Dalton. We added the Mongolian Stomper. We added the return of Don Carson and Norvell Austin. Coming soon, in fact, one of them today is going to arrive. They, these superstars are, are soon to arrive. Dick Slater, Bob Wharton Jr., Tony Charles from across the Atlantic, and Joe LaDuke from Canada. So by June of 1977, the already great crew that we have during this studcast today is going to be even stronger. In fact, much stronger, you know. So we'll only have one manager by that point in uh, basically June of 77, but we're going to have 10 of the top wrestlers in the world at that point.
0: Wow, so it sounds like nineteen seventy seven is gonna be an outstanding studcast ride every week, Ron. I cannot imagine how good cards are gonna be by the time summer arrives. And if I may, I wanna ask and I want to jump ahead just a, a little bit because your family knew Elvis Presley personally. Your father trained him to wrestle. It would be August of nineteen seventy seven that we lost the king. Did did you guys commemorate that in any way when that happened?
1: No, as a matter of fact, I don't think we did. Elvis had a strange career in a way, you know, I mean, he had those years when he was really young and he caught on fire, and then he went through a period of which he almost died, basically. I mean, uh, died away, and uh, then uh, he had the he went to Hawaii, and he did that uh, that big show that, that just put him back on top again, and I guess, you know, by 77, uh, we were so busy at this point; we were focused on one thing, I think, basically, and uh, I think that's why we were doing so well. As we just <laughs> we looked at those crowds every week, we didn't want to see them drop. We wanted to see them to continue to grow, and uh, and we probably overlooked an opportunity to do something. Maybe we could have had an Elvis manager. <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow, that's there's that a concept. would have
1: been a great idea, wouldn't it? You know, yeah, have, absolutely. But have it didn't. Elvis pretty- show up after he's it- gone.
0: Yeah, for sure. It did turn out to be the biggest story of the year. So it, it kind of makes you wonder if, if you guys stayed focused on the prize and kind of really were an alternative to all of that in the latter part of the year, which was just consumed by his death.
1: Yeah. And actually, you know, Elvis is going to arrive in wrestling pretty darn quick after that, that time frame. Well, not so quick, but, uh, within the next 10 to 12 years. Uh, he's going to be the honky talk man.
0: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
1: So Elvis didn't die, you know, right. he came back anyway, right. you know? Right.
0: All right. So this is, uh, this, is this is really going to be a good one to look forward to as we get closer to e- even summertime.
1: Yeah. Oh yes. And, uh, and by summertime, the business is going to be absolutely cranked like crazy and, uh. We'll be doing stuff that no one ever dreamed would happen in the eastern part of Tennessee in a little town of Knoxville. We'll be we really getting where we need to be. So, uh, you know, we're going to be great uh, before that, Dave, actually. You know, we're going to really crank things up here a little bit more. Besides all these guys I just mentioned that are coming in, uh, in the month of April in 1977, Terry Funk's going to come back. Hardy race, the new NWA World Champion is going to be in uh, both in the month of April. We're not going to wait till the summer to get it cranked up. We've already got it pretty cranked right it was, as it is here in uh, late uh, January, early February. By April, we're going to kick her in the butt, and uh, and then by midsummer, wow, we're going to be sailing really <laughs>
0: good. It absolutely sounds like it. Funk coming back Harley race in a championship match in April of that year. All right, Ryan. So where are we riding to next?
1: Well, we're going to ride right into the Coliseum man on Sunday afternoon, January 30th, 1977 boy, this is a pretty decently big card too, man. We're I'm pretty proud of this one. Uh, it's, it's, it's all, uh, headlined by world junior heavyweight championship match. And the opening match is going to be Rip Smith against Louis Tillet. It was the quarterfinals of the Cadillac tournament, which meant only eight wrestlers remained in contention to win the big old beautiful pink four-door Cadillac. And the Cadillac match number one, Ron Wright, was going to go up against his first time ever in Southeastern. He's, He's not a young guy so much at this point. He has already basically become a bona fide star, and that's Dick Slater. So Slater joins the crew in southeastern on this on this show. Cadillac match number two has the original Gladiator, Jim Dalton, and he's going to be facing the bad boy himself, Bob Armstrong. Cadillac match number three is uh, Ronnie Garvin, uh, but he has no manager today because his manager he got a broken leg and he's gone, and uh, and he's going to be facing me. And then Cadillac match number four, Robert Fuller. Is taking on the brand-new Southeastern champion that he lost to last week, the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Don Carson. There's also a Southeastern Tag Championship match on this card. Dick Steinborn and Don Carnoodle face the champions of Curt and Carl Von Steiger, and the main event is a World Junior Heavyweight Championship with a 60-minute time limit. Jimmy Golden is going to wrestle the World Junior Heavyweight Champion Nelson Royal.
0: I think, I mean, really, that sounds like the best card yet for the month of January in 1977 as we go back. Can't wait for those results later in this studcast. A bet, a bet, it's time for the TV for Saturday, January 29th, 1977. Can I get a big old, you are correct, Dave? Oh,
1: geez, man. Well, you're always correct, man. You got that calendar, man. (laughs) I think you got your, you circled these televisions, you know. So the last TV show in January, was another great one. Then this is the last one I'm talking about this one. However, I'm not there again. I'm in St. Louis again on this weekend. Uh, so I'd promised Sam Muchnick, uh, the St. Louis promoter, and obviously at that point the president of the National Basketball Alliance, a year earlier that I'd play for him on his basketball team on this Saturday night in a charity game against the St. Louis policemen. And I really regretted it. At this point, I got to be honest with you. I, I mean, a year earlier when I made that promise, my territory wasn't doing so well, and uh, and it was always nice to pick up the bread in St. Louis. But I couldn't, uh, you know. Now I couldn't get back out of out of my promise, you know. So uh, I didn't need to be there on this one because I'm booked against Ronnie Garvin uh, the following day, and uh, and I'm having to deal with the same problem I had last the weekend before. Am I going to make it back in time to wrestle? So I recorded an interview for this show, this television show, that's going to show the day before the Sunday afternoon that I'm supposed to wrestle Garvin, and I left it with Les. I recorded it at the studios in WBIR, and I left it with Les to play into the program. And I was hoping to get back to Knoxville in time to have that Sunday match with Garvin. And uh, I had been lucky. Same weekend before, I did it great and had no problem getting back from St. Louis. So the TV opens this day with a classic still shot uh, that we try to open all these shows with, almost all of them anyway. This one has the Mongolian Stomper. He's standing over top of a bloody brother of mine, Rob, down below. Stomper's got the southeastern belt held up over his head. Don Carson's standing next to the Stomper. He's got his hand on the Stomper's arm. It was a great victory shot. It reminded me uh, of the one with uh, Muhammad Ali when he won the world boxing title from Sonny Liston, you know, where he's standing there looking down at him, you know, and uh, he's, wow. he's he's got the belt. He, he's the man, you know. Yeah. and uh, yeah. So Don Carson set with Les at the set. He, he's there with the Stomper to open the show. And the Stomper is behind him. The Stomper was all oiled and pumped. I mean, by golly. Uh, And he had this, that newly won southeastern belt uh, around his waist. He was carrying his signature calling card, which was a strange-looking contraption. It was actually, it was a a steel truck uh, springs from a steel, big old uh, truck, right? Uh, And Stomper had had them weld handles on each end of this steel spring. The truck spring. And uh, when finally uh, Carson started to talk to Les, then uh, Stompers behind Carson and he starts bending this spring in a U shape. I oh mean, God. It, oh. it, 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 you know, but, uh, there are few people alive that had the strength to do that, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And he's
1: just bang, bang, man. His muscles are all rippling. He, I mean, he looked massive, man. He looked like a champion. There was no doubt about it. And uh, people at home, I think about it when I, I think back on this. What he looked like, I, I know those poor people at home were wondering what it'd be like to get in the ring with this guy.
0: I no kidding, I,
1: <laughs> no. Uh-huh. What, what? 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 You got to be nuts to get in the ring with this guy. So Carson, obviously, in his, boy, Carson is really at this point flying high, man. So he 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 he's he's running the show as usual, he just tells the director, run that video, man, we want to see my man <laughs> do his
0: deal you that know sounds just like him
1: <laughs> yeah, he just you know unless is like unless wants to run the show, but you know Carson's by he's there now and man he's I'm in charge, my man and me are in charge, and uh he he wanted to see that magnificent stoppers win of the Southeastern title in his very first try at it. That's what Carson kept harping on this. He didn't have to have six or 10 or 15 chances (laughs) in the very first time. He just took the belt, right? You know, and Carson just couldn't stop bragging about his monster. Uh, And Rob was extremely bloody in this video. It'd been a long match and then Stomper kicked him in the face several times already at this point. And, uh, and his, His face during the course of this video had to be blurred. The director several times blurred his face uh, to to keep the the, the fans at home. We were always trying to be careful about not showing too much blood uh, on television. and uh, So our director was really good about this. So in this particular video, there's a lot of shots in which Rob is bleeding. And when the close-up comes, the face is blurred uh so that fans can't see how bad it was. So mm-hmm. when the video's over, Carson and Stomper, they left the set. Now Stomper was in the first match of the show. And it didn't take didn't last long, obviously, <laughs> and it ended with another bloody opponent on television, right? Wow. So and Stomper beat this guy down, um uh, and he beat him with the move he was named for. He stomped him in the face. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> That's why they called him Stomper, and, they, you know, that's how he took care of this opponent and most others. And there was a silence again in the studio. Just as it had been the last week when he had wrestled on TV, fans were pretty much horrified of, of this guy. I mean, they were just, wow, they they didn't know. They were scared to boo almost, you know. a uh, Patched up Rob then joins less of the set. It comes time for the first interview. And uh, he's going to be wrestling Stomper the next afternoon in the tournament. Now it's in the Cadillac tournament. And uh, so Stomper and Carson, they move into Studio B to do their one minute. It's a two-minute interview. They're going to do the first minute. And then uh, Rob's going to do the last. And Carson led off with, you know, Carson was about how poor old beat-up Robert Fuller must feel having to come back tomorrow afternoon (laughs) to Coliseum. And face this guy again, you know. He goes, he goes uh, "I don't care if it's a Cadillac or whatever it is, you know. How much beating does this boy want?" You know, so, so Stomper, he only had to win three more matches. Don brought that fact up. We're in the quarterfinals. My man here wins three more matches, and I'm gonna be riding around in a pink Cadillac, dude. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna be driving it. The Stomper said nothing as usual, uh, but his body language, man, he's back there bending that steel spring while Don is talking. His body language said everything that need be said. I can wow. tell you that. Wow, he was he was doing it without saying anything. Bob Armstrong told me later, uh, you know, because I wasn't at this show, and uh, and I'll tell later a little bit uh, what what I, when I actually got to see all of this. But he told me later that uh, Rob was kind of quiet when he came his time to finish that last one minute of the interview. And uh, Stomper was probably the worst guy Rob could have drawn in the quarterfinals, especially since he lost the belt to him the Sunday before. So I was told by Bob that that Rob did get fired up, man, but toward toward the end of it. And he said something about the Fullers had been uh, taking an occasional beating. But that we always came back stronger, even stronger the next time we met that same guy that had had put a beating on us. So we ended up saying something about how hard Carson's going to be crying when he loses, when the Stomper loses, and he loses that chance for Carson to take that pink Cadillac. So crowd popped about that. And uh, Rob was certainly a big underdog the next day, no doubt about that. Second segment of the show opened with Bob Armstrong in the ring. Boy, fans were eager by this point. They've seen the stopper demolish a guy in the first one, and, you know, they're eager to cheer for somebody. Bob didn't disappoint him, boy, and he left them on their feet when it was over, like he usually did. And then he went to the set for the second interview. And the so called original Gladiator was in Studio B this time. The Gladiator went first, and he bragged, you know, about how he was going to enjoy the Cadillac and how famous he was going to be after he beat. Just getting the win over Bob Armstrong's like winning the Cadillac, you know. So for a guy like him, it would have been winning the Cadillac. So Bob started out when the interview came to him about how many matches in the row this so-called original gladiator had lost since the real gladiator Dick Steinborn came back. Right. <laughs> he was saying, What's that count again, List? 17, uh, seventeen, nineteen straight? <laughs> what you know. So, so he, he said, and then Bob uh, had a great line. He said, you know, g- gladiators went out of style 2,000 years ago. And he says, <laughs> and he goes, this, this 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 so-called gladiator is about as much a chance, he has about as good a chance of beating me as he did of beating Dick Steinborn. So he said, tomorrow he was going to be the glad he ate him. He said, meaning... That I'm going to eat the gladiator tomorrow, by God, and I'm going to step one step closer to getting that beautiful Cadillac. <laughs> and the crowd popped it, man. The ate him instead of the gladiator. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, this TV's off to a great start.
0: Oh, without a doubt. Listen, a lot of details so far in this show. This is a great spot to take a break. Let's do that. This Studcast will continue in a moment right here. We all have memories of people we knew that are no longer with us. It's those memories that keep those dearly departed close to us. Super Studcast number 37 is filled with memories, facts, and accomplishments of probably the greatest American wrestler that ever lived. Danny Hodge. At tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. We'll take you on the wrestling ride of a lifetime. Danny Hodge was much more than a tremendous wrestler. That is clear when you hear the memory of fellow Oklahomans Jerry Briscoe and Cowboy Bill Watts about the man they admired at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. It'll get you more than three hours of those heartfelt memories for only $2.99. An unforgettable story about an unforgettable man. And don't miss your chance to own one of the greatest examples of old school wrestling ever recorded at tnstud.com stud store the southeastern continental five-pack dvds are filled with stars matches and interviews from the past the armstrongs the fullers riches andre hogan before he was hogan arn olympia idol adrian street sullivan dr tom rip rogers dirty white boy dutch mantel the list is endless the value is priceless. Get yours now at tnstud.com, click stud store, only 39.99 and that includes shipping. Own your piece of history now at tnstud.com. Hey, welcome back everybody. David Summers on another studcast with the Tennessee Stud. Ron fuller it's always fun to keep up with the stud cast and you can do it too at tnstud.com every studcast ever recorded is right there. Every super stud cast is right there too. If you're hanging out at home looking for something to do and something to occupy your mind, this is a great way to go. Or if you get that road trip coming up, you can plug in these stud cast and time will fly. All right. We are saddled up and we will stay on the trail. So where to now stud? Well, the personality profile was the
1: next thing on this show. And uh, this one is all about Ronnie Garvin and basically the loss of his second manager since he'd come to Southeastern, Big Bad John. Garvin's been there about four months at this point. Uh, General Homer O'Dell was his manager for the first month, and then Homer got bumped out of Southeastern, and Big Bad John jumped in to take his place. Uh, John lasted a little longer than Homer as a manager. He made it three months, and he got a broken leg, and he was gone. So I didn't see the show like I mentioned earlier, because I was in St. Louis, but the following Monday after this TV had aired, just two days after the TV had aired, I was allowed to come and view the entire show at the television station at WBIR. And they took me in that big old conference room that I was in just a couple of studcasts to go. Mm-hmm. And they had all the management there and we're all looking at the TV ratings. They put me in there by myself, man, and made me feel like a king. And the first thing that I remember when I started thinking back about this show was how Ronnie Garvin's personality profile just lit things up. Rob and I were somewhat concerned about him not having a manager from this point. Is he going to be able to talk and get the heat that he needs to get? Mm-hmm. So this profile focused on Garvin and his future, basically, in Southeastern. And he'd been a man a few words since his arrival. And on this day, fans were going to get a real good look as well as hear for the first time what Ronnie Garvin was all about. And it had been pre-recorded, this segment, earlier in the day. Uh, Les and I talked about it. We don't want to do this in front of the studio. We want to pre-record it. And so that's what we did. And obviously, it was before anybody, any of the audience arrived at the building. And Rob and I had spent a great deal of time, I already mentioned it, working with Ronnie on this. On this one piece, the first time he talks, it's got to be good. And we were just trying to give him, infuse him with confidence that he could do his own interviews. And he was much too good a talent to not take that final step and learn to talk, man. I mean, he was so talented in the ring. So I think we really, really did a great job of preparing him for this. Mm-hmm. So this personality profile opened, as most of them did, with uh, Les and Garvin sitting down in the big old comfortable chairs. Uh, this is not a wrestling segment. I mean, they're going to talk about wrestling, but it's it's a different segment. We utilized it and came up with the idea, and it worked so well for our program. Uh, we accomplished so much in these personality profiles. So Les began with the video from the Sunday before, with the Texas Death Rules Lumberjack match between me and Big Bad John. And then he showed at the end of that match where I got the fuller leg lock. And because Ronnie was a lumberjack uh, and there were a lot of wrestlers in the ring, he wasn't able to jump in there and save me, save mm. John, rather. Uh, but he, he had to stand there. And, and once I got that toehold on him that time, especially after John running his mouth about, uh, he walked out of there, you know, the week before. And and I think I promised fans that I was going to break his leg if I had a chance. And, and that's exactly what happened there. And Ronnie watched it. i would stand there and watch it. And then the end of the video, it showed him stretcher him right out of the ring, man. And right out of Southeastern history, actually, forever. So Les said to Garvin, before we get any further into the profile, he wanted Ronnie to watch this interview that I had cut the, the day before, before I left town and that I was in St. Louis he explained that I was in St. Louis and he didn't tell him I was playing in the basketball game, but you know, that wasn't a very good reason to go to St. Louis as far as I was concerned. But, uh, you know, it, it, this was my interview against Garvin for the Cadillac tournament match. That was going to happen the next day. And it was only about a minute long. So about the time the interview ended, uh, when I'm watching this show back on Monday, before Garvin had a chance to respond, I don't know where guess who shows up on the set, man, Don Carson. And, uh, you know, he approaches Garvin uh, with an offer, man. He wants to manage him along with his Mongolian stomper. You know, he goes, you know, you, you need a manager, Ronnie. And, uh, you know, I'm great, man. I got the look, I got the stomper already, you know, and he started pitching the a, a story to, to Garvin about, can you imagine what the three of us could do? I mean, we're not only control Southeastern wrestling. He said, we can control Southeast this wrestling throughout the Southern part of this country, man. He says, all we got to do, Ronnie, is work together. And, and then he says, I'll, you know, you're going to make huge money. You're going to hold big titles. You're going to become extremely famous, Ronnie Garvin. And then he reaches in his pocket like old Don does and And he brings out a water cache, man, and he's shoving it toward Garvin. You know, here, here, look at what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ronnie jumped up to his feet, man, and he he was mad. (laughs) I don't know whether him and Carson had a problem or they didn't like each other. I don't know what was wrong, but Ronnie wasn't good. He wasn't swayed by Carson a bit more, and he not only did he get to his feet, but he made a move to go after Carson and Don jumped back boy. And he started apologizing, you know, oh, maybe I interrupted. I'm sorry. I, maybe it's the wrong time. to Talk about this, oh. you know, and then, and then carbon spoke real coldly to him, man. And then he said, he said something like, you know, there's never going to be a good time for us to talk Carson. <laughs> he says, you're no different than Homer O'Dell or big, bad John. He says you only uh, want to take advantage of great wrestlers like your stomper that can make you a living far beyond what you ever made for yourself.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, he said, and then he said at the end of it, you know, he, he, he just said a few words, but boy, they were all good. And he said, don't ever come near me again, Don Carson. I'll take you apart and then I'll jump off in your throat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, how did Garvin sound? I mean, because you guys were a little concerned because of the the strong accent.
1: Yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, he you, he was understandable. You know, for the first time, he you you could really understand. uh, You know, his accent didn't take over, and you could understand every word he said. We were really pleased. Rob and I both, man, we were like, wow, Ronnie, he did great. My gosh, he's going to be good. And Don practically ran out of the studio and, unless uh, and I had to get up from his chair and kind of calm Ronnie down. And he says, Hey, Hey, I'm sorry about this, hey, but it's not over. Sit down. We're not through. And uh, then he started to ask Ronnie about his plans. What's your plans now? You know, big, bad John's gone. So Garvin spoke up strong at this point, confident. And, and for the first, per- first time, like, like I just said, he was more understandable with his French Canadian accent than I I'd, I'd ever heard him before. And he said he no longer and I think it's because he took his time and he was very soft spoken about it but very uh uh determined and he said that he says I'm going to speak for myself from now on uh, not just on TV but mm-hmm. in the ring as well. And then he told a short story about he how he had carried His tag team partner, Terrence Garvin, for years in the ring when they were partners. And he said, the only reason I did it is because I needed somebody that could talk for me on TV. But he says, those days are gone. Talking is easy, he said, but it's more difficult and it's much more important to jump in a wrestler's throat and let that be my talking. (laughs) <laughs> wow! Holy cow! So he was he boy. I got goosebumps sitting in this in this conference room and watching him. I said, "Wow, this guy's got it." Then he, when he finished his deal, he got up and he left. I mean, Les glad well, to close it out by himself. Uh, then I, I, I just sat there and I thought, "That's got to be one of the best, the most powerful personality profiles I've ever seen, man." I said, "Wow, Ronnie Garvin got over without a manager."
0: Man, and this this flying off the top rope with the knee, of course, you've been on the wrong side of, of that knee before. Oh, man, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's a big time. Yes, I certainly have.
0: You wow. know, Spent a little time in the hospital. Yeah. It it, yeah. it seems to me, though, and, and, well, you correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not sure what's going on here. It seems like Garvin is turning baby-faced. I mean, I'm a little confused by this. So what comes next with Garvin?
1: Well, you know, Dave, that's exactly what you want as a booker. You want your fans to be confused, and you don't want them ever to figure out where you're going, you know? Mm -hmm. It's going to get very interesting, let's put it this way, at this point. What's going to happen for Ronnie Garvin down the road here? And that was the booker's job, man, to keep it interesting. And you never wanted the fans to have any idea what's going to happen next. And uh, wow, we teased them there a little bit that day. Fans are like, wow, what's going to happen? What's going on now with this guy? So let's talk about the next TV match. It was another brilliant young star who's making his first appearance in Southeastern wrestling. Uh, This is the guy that I grew up cutting my teeth with in the early 1970s in the Florida Territory. Since the day he had his first match, he's just one of those guys that had it. And uh, that's Dick Slater. And Dick Slater is coming in. And he's involved in the Cadillac tournament, his very first day. Uh, he's one of the last eight in the tournament. On the next day and on this day, he's going to blow fans' minds, man. <laughs> so he started off by displaying in this first match that they watch him in these tremendous wrestling skills. Man, he's taking guys down and he's, he's chain wrestling and he's hammer-locking and, and hammerlock, the to headlock and back to the arm and down to the leg. And then all of a sudden, he just goes crazy. He throws the guy over the top rope. He jumps out and he pile drives him in the floor, the concrete, you know. And uh, and so the referee, he, he immediately disqualifies him. He, what's he going to do, you know? I mean, gosh, he, you, you can't do that. We threw him over the top rope. He's disqualified. And then he goes out and pile drives him in the floor. So referee rings the bell, and he got uh, you know he, he he signifies pointing down to the guy who's laying there you know unconscious. Yeah, there's your winner, right? And uh, and mm-hmm. so Slater jumps back up in the ring, and he knocks the referee unconscious. Wow! He hits him, wham! <laughs> down the referee goes, uh, you know, and then he just gets out of the ring, and he comes to the set with less. And you know Les is like you know Les Les is wanting to talk to him, but he doesn't say anything. You know Les is like, what what, what is what are you doing? What is this going to be? What's uh, going to happen with you? And uh, you know so uh, then there's an interview coming up right after that. You know so he's there. He's going to talk about his opponent for the next day. And in Studio B, his opponent is there, and his opponent happens to be Ron Wright. Ah, And, uh, you know, and Ron Wright, when, when the cameras, you know, when the red light went on, Ron Wright was almost without words. And that's saying a lot when Ron Wright doesn't know <laughs> what to say. And yeah. then he finally stumbled around there and he said, yeah, I've never in all my years seen anyone do something like that. <laughs> said, what just happened on that guy's first match in the new territory? had how do you go into a territory and do something like that he said he said but i'm glad i'm glad i saw this he goes uh you know i don't know what to expect this new kid i've never heard much about him called dick slater you know and he, and he says you know on the end is one minute's running out and he says but now i'm telling you i'll be ready tomorrow for anything he says you know and uh and he says, and i tell you what, that boy better be ready for a good old Tennessee dog whooping. <laughs> <laughs> so he got his line in, boy, in that studio pop,
0: man. You bet. I bet they you did. Know, That's awesome.
1: Yeah, you did. So, you know, and Ron, that old Ron, what a great talker he was. But I'll tell you, Dick Slater really put him back, man. So Slater took it from there, you know, and he, he started saying something about where he came from. And where I came from, what I just did is a very mild thing, he says, you know. And he says, referees are just like wrestlers to me, he said. If they do something wrong, something I don't like, he says, I'll knock them out. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, and he said, uh, that that tomorrow, he says, uh, I'm in a ring with a guy, he says, I've heard a lot of things about, you know, and he says, and I'm happy that I come here and they start me off with one of the best of them here. And he says, He said, but I look at him, Les Thatcher, and he said, Ron Wright, he said, he's old. He goes, (laughs) goes, I'll have no mercy on his old ass. (laughs) 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 And the director had to go back after the show was done. At least we had an hour before it aired, and Mm. he had to cut the word ass, right? You know, (laughs) but it didn't make any difference. Dick Slater had started his Southeastern run with a bang. There it (laughs) is, yeah. He made an impression in the first match and then in the first interview. You know, he he's gonna be a he's gonna be a force. So last match on the show was all about the main event for the next day. World Junior Heavyweight Champions there for the show, like he was last week. He wrestled. In fact, last week's show on the last stud cast. And this one, he's there to watch his opponent for the next day, Jimmy Golden, who's wrestling in the ring in that match. And Royal as uh, you know just there basically for his interview and and, and his interviews you know, was just like his name his interviews and his talk on television he was royal and aloof that's, mm-hmm. that's a good way to describe it he yeah. talked down to fans and opponents man he was he was the king and the rest of y'all ain't crap you know <laughs> and you know and he started making all these derogatory comments about golden during the match. just one after another and he called him that young punk. He said he had a lot of nerve coming out here last week and challenging me, you know, was in my time spot. And he, 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 you know, he was really upset with Jimmy. You could tell. So, uh, at the end of this match, so Jimmy boy, he jumps up on that top rope, man. And he hits his opponent with one of those beautiful drop kicks off the top rope. Nelson Royal jumped out of his seat next to less. And he charges the ring and the, uh, and by the time Jimmy gets his hand raised, uh, Nelson Royal slides underneath the bottom rope, and and he and he jumps up on his feet and he takes a swing at Jimmy, and Jimmy sees him coming. Thank goodness! And uh, and he he blocks his punch and he nails Royal with a punch, and uh, Royal kind of turned and slapped him. And, you know, he played, his head kind of bobbed around to one side. And Jimmy just snatched him in, and he suplexed him right there in the ring. Wow. And then Jimmy went up on the top rope, and he got there, and he stood on the top rope. And uh, I guess Roy was surprised, man. He's done blasted me with one, and he suplexed me too, and he got up, and he didn't know where Golden was. And uh, when he turned around looking for Jimmy, Jimmy came off that top rope, and, I mean, he popped him with the best the top rope dropkick I ever saw. And uh, it sent uh, Royal through the ropes, and he landed on his stomach face first, and he slid across the studio floor with his clothes on. Uh, that crowd popped. They exploded like, wow, did you see that? And then he got up, and he staggered a little bit, and uh, it was time for interviews. So he staggered back to the set with less. So Jimmy had time. There's a 2 minutes uh, break there, commercial break. So Jimmy went on into Studio B where we were doing interviews, uh, two guys at a time for the entire show. And uh, he got ready to talk about his world title shot the next day. So Jimmy was supposed to start the interview, but Royal was so mad that as soon as he saw the red light light up on the camera, he jumped right in. He he roared like a lion, man, less less kind of backing away like, Whoa, geez, Nelson, what's going on? And uh, and he about he was mad man about uh, Golden. Well, I'm what I'm gonna do to you, man, <laughs> to, the, tomorrow afternoon because of what just happened here, man. It's like, so Jimmy don't end up with much time. <laughs> Nelson takes first minute and a half, and Jimmy's supposed to get a minute of it. So Jimmy pretty quickly on the end, he's very calm about it. And uh, what a great interview. He says, you know, basically. I've been wrestling for 10 years. And he said, I've been waiting for a shot at the world junior heavyweight championship. And he goes, by golly, I'm going to get it in 24 hours from right now. And he said that Nelson Royal, he says, he's nothing but a big bully. He says, he's got no respect from wrestlers and the fans anywhere in the world. People hate him. You know? And he said, tomorrow afternoon, he says, I'm on a drop kick Royal right out of the Knoxville Coliseum. <laughs> And he says, "I'm gonna take his coveted world championship tomorrow afternoon." Boy, the studio crowd exploded, man. Uh, you know, uh, just like they did on that dropkick a couple of minutes earlier. So Les is starting to close the show. The, inter- the show's running out. He's got maybe 30 seconds, and Royal starts screaming, "They're golden again!" And so the show's going off, and Les is saying, thank you for joining us. And Roy's going, hey, I'm going to kill you, kid. (laughs) And the studio crowd is just booing him like crazy. And, I mean, there's pandemonium at the end of the show. It was one of the best uh, TVs, man, so far in Southeastern history, I thought.
0: I can definitely see that, was true. What a great TV to lead into that big card (laughs) that's going to be the next day in the Coliseum. So what were the results of that card on January 30th? Nineteen
1: seventy-seven. Well, Rip Smith uh, won the first match with Louis Tillette and uh, he had wrestled Louis s- several times, and he got the best of Louis in just about all of them. Uh, Rip Smith uh, was a kid from Florida that really had a lot of talent, and in the first Cadillac tournament match, Ronnie Garvin uh, came down to the ring, and uh, and I had trouble with my flights. I was not as lucky as I was the weekend before. And I got to my first flight to come and take me out of St. Louis to get me home in time for this match. And it was canceled. They had a problem with it. And then, uh, I tried my best to make it back. I wasn't able to get back into Knoxville until six o'clock on Sunday night. So Ronnie Garvin goes to the ring for my match with him. And it's a forfeit. Rob told me later that evening, when I got home, I went to see Rob. I said, tell me what the heck happened. You know, uh, you guys had to, had to, I had to forfeit, and so how'd that go? And he said when Garvin was accepting the forfeit win, that Don Carson came down the ringside. And uh, he got the microphone, and Garvin's in the ring. They're raising his hand. He don't have to even wrestle me. And uh, he says that uh, Carson started giving some nasty comments to Garvin, uh, saying something about, you know, I can't believe you're going to accept an easy win like that without having to even beat anybody. Uh, You know, just because your opponent didn't show up. And uh, Garvin took not too much of it, and then he jumped out on the floor for Don. And Don ran like a – Prof said he ran like a track star, man, (laughs) back to the dressing room. Like, oh, God, I don't want Garvin getting me. Bob Armstrong uh, is in the next of these matches, these Cadillac uh, quarterfinal matches, and he beat uh, the so-called original Gladiator – And he had a little bit of help because Dick Steinborn, you know, that he had this down by now. He showed up at the right time, and here the old dummy went for the deal again, and Bob got him an easy win. And, uh, you know, Steinborn and Gladiator, they're about to start to settle this score. Uh, The next three weeks in Southeastern, they're going to to have some battles. Uh, Finally, we're going to find out who the badass and who the real Gladiator was. So the Southeastern Tag Championship match went next. Uh, Steinborn and Canoodle, they won that match by disqualification. And uh, so obviously they didn't get the Von Steiger's belts. Uh, Ron Wright and newcomer Dick Slater, according to what Rob told me, tore the Coliseum down. You know, Slater was so good at, at healing. And he and was a great babyface too, but he had such a feel for healing and Ron Wright was so over in that territory, man, that, uh, you know, Slater beat the number one hillbilly, but he didn't beat him before old Ron introduced him to the chisel. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Slater got the victory, but by golly, he left their bloody son of a gun for it. Wow. <laughs> you know, Ron brought his old chisel. He he needed a little help and he knew it. And by golly, he brought it. So, last tournament match was Rob against Mongolian Stomper. And, uh, you know, Stomper uh, pretty much had Rob under control. He had Bob bleeding again. And he was about to finish him off. And uh, Garvin came down and returned the favor. uh, Because, uh, you know, Carson had showed up for his deal. So, Garvin showed up down there. and, uh, And he was only focused on Don Carson. He didn't care about getting involved in the match. He started... Basically backing Carson around the ring, and the stomper saw it, you know and and gosh he he's, he knows Garvin won't get his man here, and he he lost the, his his focus on Rob, and he turned to to see what he's going to have to do to save Don Carson's butt mm-hmm. and Rob just slid in there on the stomper out of nowhere man and got him in a nice small package and boy, that building erupted when Rob won that match, man wow. Yeah, but Rob beat the Stomper. I mean, nobody in the building thought that was going to happen. And as soon as they got, Rob got the three count, Garvin immediately went right back to the dressing room. <laughs> so the main event for that day was absolutely fantastic. One of those matches uh, that uh, I watched a video of it, uh, one of those matches that Bill's territories. It had a tremendous amount of wrestling in it. It was a one-hour time limit draw. I love those hour matches. Rob said that everybody, and I could see it when I watched the match, the last five minutes of the match, there wasn't anybody sitting in that building, man. I knew it was going to be great. I knew Jimmy was ready for this type of deal. And uh, what happened in this match is uh, Nelson Royal established himself as the world junior heavyweight champion for Mm -hmm. South. He is the suit world junior heavyweight champion for there. And, uh, he's going to be back many times in the future, uh, defending that world junior heavyweight championship. And Jimmy Golden made himself a bigger star that day than he ever was. And, uh, he's headed for some main events by golly after this one.
0: Oh, no doubt. I, I absolutely believe that. And this win by Rob had to put him over big time as well. Oh yeah. How I mean, old was he, he by the way? Huh? How old was Rob at that at time? At this
1: point, let's see. We're talking about night, and uh, he's uh he's twenty nine.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah.
1: Twenty nine years old, man. Uh, you know, uh, Jimmy's twenty eight. I mean, you know, we're 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 twenty eight, twenty nine, and thirty. We're all right in there together. We're all young guys at this point, man. We're yeah. we're in our prime. We're not really in our prime yet. We think we're in our prime.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. So. On your way to it, at least. Man, that is a tremendous afternoon, it sounds like, Rod. So what was the attendance? It had to be pretty big that day.
1: Yes, uh, it was 5,300. It was the largest attendance since the Terry Funk title match in October of 76. We're staying above that 5,000 and slowly creeping forward with it. And before we finish with this date, I want to mention that on that Saturday night, after the TV now that we just talked about, and before the event on Sunday afternoon, every wrestler went that night to Harlan, Kentucky. And it wasn't just the normal crew because Nelson Roy was in town and because Dick Slater was just starting. That threw them on those cards, too. The whole crew went there, and then uh, Roy went there, Slater went there. Nelson Roy defended his world title that night against Dick Steinborn. In another, I I wasn't there. I didn't see it because I was in St. Louis. But I know for sure that that was an unbelievably great wrestling match between Nelson Royal and Dick Steinborn, And we recorded our first sellout in Harlan with over 3,000 fans. They shut the building down, big old round gymnasium. They had to close it down. uh, And the gate topped
0: $10,000 in Harlan, Kentucky for the first time. How far of a ride was it from Knoxville to Harlan?
1: About an hour and forty-five minutes.
0: So not too rough on the guys. So they were no. there were not, once they got there, they were they were settling in pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, we didn't have any really hard. The probably the longest ride in the territory by this point. We're no longer going to West Virginia. Yeah. Was uh, Hazard, Kentucky, was about two hours. Yeah. Wow. So uh, you know, by r- wrestling standards, that's a short trip.
0: Yeah, no doubt. At business. Listen, it sounds like business was absolutely on fire in southeastern. I think it is time that we get that cold drink. We'll take a seat under the learning tree once again. And remind us who asked the question for this one, Ron, and what was it once again?
1: This question came from a lady named uh, Dorothy Blankenship. And uh, she asked, uh, in 1977, how did Knoxville crowds compare to other cities of its size? That's a great question, and it's especially it's significant because man, we're we're getting into a time frame in which we're starting to draw some monstrous crowds, basically for a smaller city. Before we compare these Knoxville's crowds to other cities at size, though, I think uh, I want to go through a little bit of further into 1977 and take a little look ahead and try to get a real close figure of what the average crowd was in 1977 for us. Yeah. So in the month of January that we're just now finishing, we'd averaged slightly over 5,000 per event for the month of January. The Cadillac tournament was going to end two weeks after this match that we're into today. We're going to set another record crowd. Uh, we're going to beat the Terry Funk. We're going to hit almost 6,000 for that match. Uh, we're coming up in April with another NWA title defense with me against Harley race. Uh, and as Harley makes his first appearance ever in Southeastern, that event will break the all time sports record for that Coliseum building. It's going to go well over 6,000 people. Wow. The summer crowds. Wow. We're going to move back into the amphitheater in Chi Park in the summer because we can actually put more people in the high Park Amphitheater than they can put in the Coliseum. So we're going to average about six thousand plus all summer long. And then you take the fall of the year into consideration, the houses are going to drop a little bit, but I'm going to estimate in nineteen seventy seven that Knoxville's average attendance per show was probably six thousand fans.
0: Wow, and that's that's on a weekly basis, right? That's
1: on a weekly basis, 6,000 wow. fans every week. Uh, and the problem was we didn't have a big enough building or or, or a big enough structure out there to Howie Park to put in eight or nine. We might have been able to draw seven or eight, maybe 10,000 fans uh, on some night. So let's compare Knoxville's population to other cities in Tennessee in 1977. And then we'll compare the crowds. Uh, So, Knoxville's population was the third largest city in the state of Tennessee in 1977. The population in Knoxville was about 175,000 people. Nashville, middle of the state, uh, second largest city in the state in 1977, had a half a million people. It was almost three times larger than Knoxville, Nashville was. Nashville's matches took place in the Fairgrounds Arena, it was called. It held about 3,000 fans. Nick Goulis, who was the promoter there in uh, Nashville, Uh, he never moved out of that small arena. He used to pretty much sell that small arena out, but he never moved out of that small arena and went into the Nashville Auditorium where my hockey team played in the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. If he'd have done that, he could have put 9,000 in that building for wrestling matches. So, Nashville, when you look at the difference between Nashville and Knoxville, Nashville had a three times larger population in knoxville but it was drawing half of what we were drawing in knoxville (laughs) we were averaging six they were doing three so i'm going to compare knoxville's crowds to memphis now now there ain't many promoters that want to do this comparison because memphis since my father had left there and that big run in 1960 was one of the greatest wrestling cities in the world
0: yeah it had to be
1: yeah it it just it just rocked every week in memphis So the Memphis population in 1977 was 800,000 people. Uh, Its building held 11,000. Mid-South Coliseum held 11,000 people. I've wrestled in it full there on the main event many times. But during 1977, they weren't filling it up every week. They were averaging about 6,000 an event. Uh, Now Memphis was almost five times larger than Knoxville. And they, they were struggling in 1977 to average 6,000. And that's what we were doing in Knoxville. Five times a large, smaller city. i make one more comparison. And this one comes with the two major markets in Florida, Miami and the Tampa area. Wow. Uh, both of those cities were about a half a million people in 1977. Mm-hmm. They were both about uh, three times bigger than Knoxville was. Uh, and I recently saw a figure. Uh, for a Miami crowd in nineteen seventy seven and its on a facebook facebook group page, and that figure was thirty six hundred for a Miami oh. crowd in nineteen seventy seven oh. and and that city's three times larger than Knoxville, but it was only drawn on a lot of nights half of what we were drawn in Knoxville now if you look at tampa 's army, that was the home of Florida wrestling right there in that armory in Tampa. It held about five thousand people. And Tampa was a city about the same size as Miami when you take into consideration Clearwater and St. Pete. And that area averaged there was half a million people there. And uh and they averaged about probably forty five hundred a show in Tampa. They it always rocked. They mm-hmm. always there mm-hmm. was the big city in Florida. So they're they're doing less than we're doing in Knoxville. They're three times larger than Knoxville, like Miami. We're doubling Miami's crowds, and we're 30% higher than Tampa's crowds mm-hmm. in a 175,000 population city. So bear in mind, the, both these states were great rising states. If Knoxville's crowds were compared to most cities across the country of 175,000 population in 1970, I think Knoxville might have been drawn seven, eight times what uh, most cities were drawn of that size. For Miss Blankenship, uh, I did my best here to, to be pretty accurate, uh, hopefully, and a fairly accurate assessment of Knoxville's crowds and how they were doing as compared to other cities.
0: Well, and I remember as a youngster being at my uncle's house down in Tampa and watching those matches on TV. Everything here, Ron, was supported by TV just like you were in Knoxville.
1: Yeah, it was a critical, it was your promotional tool. I mean, wow. you could have the billboards and you could add other things to it, but your television, uh, if your television was strong, you had big audience, uh, you're
0: going to do big business. And if you, so, if you had a poor television, you weren't. So you weren't doing anything that they weren't doing and vice versa. And you, it, to to me, it's absolutely incredible. And I know you're wrapping up the, the learning tree here. Why do you think this was happening in Knoxville and Southeastern and not in these other cities around the country and, and I think I know the answer, but I want to hear that I want to hear what you say
1: well, that's a great one I mean you know and uh, and that's why I love doing this learning tree uh, you know the this segment is so so good to me. I really enjoy it because uh, every question just about that I get it requires me to give it more thought i there's an answer right away, boom, but then I get to dig in a little further in my mind. And I was like, well, you know, uh, there there's reasons for this. And and so I actually asked myself something very near to this <laughs> once I looked at this question about why were we doing better than everybody else? So obviously, we were doing a lot of things right back in 1977. We, we had the right building, the biggest building in the city. Uh, we had the right publicity. We, you know, we had obviously the TV was tremendous. Our ratings were just astronomical, uh, and we threw those billboards out once or twice a year. We were working the right angles. Uh, We had a lot of great talent, uh, and we were creating the best TV show in the country at this point. I think Uh, maybe even better than what they were doing in Tampa, and that's where I got a lot of my ideas, and so did Les Thatcher, for this TV it was the the best when I went there in 1970 and started as a young guy that Tampa TV show with Gordon Sully was just kick butt yep. man and yep. it was so good but there was something unique happening in southeastern that made it totally different than any other place in the country and and I, you know and and I thought about this the other day and I'm glad you asked something about this cuz I wouldn't have even thrown this in but Knoxville was a small territory it really only had one major market, Knoxville, th- that one city. And uh, we were running four or five smaller cities each week out in all directions from Knoxville. So every time we went to those little smaller cities, uh, you know, some of them 100 miles or more from Knoxville, it was a promotion for wrestling itself. So over the years, as we continued to go to these smaller cities, fans in those smaller cities, got so inspired by what was happening in their gyms and in their cities they watched this TV show and they began to come from all directions to Knoxville for the big show wow whatever happened in Knoxville was much bigger than happened in these small towns hmm. so by the thousands they had to be there man they had to come to Knoxville on these Sundays like this this time of year to these major events that that were promoted right there in their own homes every Saturday. They sat and watched that TV, wow. and they got in their cars and they drove 100 miles, And maybe some of them more than 100 miles. So <laughs> looking back on those days, Dave, I'd guess that at least a 1,000 of those 6,000 people that's in that Coliseum drove from more than 30 miles outside Knoxville to be a part of it. So southeastern Knoxville – Was a unique territory. Uh, It was small, but extremely successful. And and without a doubt, it had some of the best wrestling fans in the world there.
0: It certainly sounds like it. I've got to go back just for a second because it it does make sense. And it's not that other territories were competition because you weren't competing directly with them. But how did, and, and it's smart to know what other territories are doing because it might be something that works in your territory. But how did Les and you? keep up with what was happening in Tampa, you know, I mean, you didn't have an internet back then. So what What did you do?
1: Les was really great at it. I mean, i I was always, I was always just trying to handle talent and uh, do booking stuff and Les was the TV guy and uh, Les was on top of it. There was a lot of trading of programs and things like that between territories. Les always had territory programs out of Carolina and programs out of Florida. You know, programs that they sell at matches, right? And right. Uh, and then those programs you can see who's wrestling who and you can see what kind of angles they're working. And then you you whenever you got a chance, he would ask Gordon to send him. He said, Gordon, can you send me a couple of your later shows? I'll just oh, want to see yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, nobody was doing that. We were one of the few people that were doing that. Everybody else wanted to run their own deal. They always yeah. thought they had the very best program there was. And, uh, no matter what their business was, if they weren't drawing any people, it wasn't their fault. <laughs> you know? Yeah, We're doing all the right things here. I can't imagine why we're not drawing, but, uh, you, you, you just, you had to stay on top of it. And Les was a big part of that. He always looked into those television situations and, and, uh, we were just doing banging, bang, bang businesses.
0: Amazing. Oh, no doubt. And I'm curious too, about wrestling magazines. They were all over the newsstands. The covers were had bloody faces. Did you guys garner anything from wrestling magazines to take back to your territory? Here's that, what's happening in, in, in this area, et cetera.
1: That I'm, I'm disappointed in what we did there. My dad kind of put me in the wrong direction when I first started promoting. And, uh, he said, uh, you know, don't, don't, uh, get too hooked up with the wrestling magazines because, uh, you don't want people to know that you're doing this big huge business because oh. they're liable to come in and try to take it from you. Huh. Right. So I really, uh, did not, uh, push, uh, real hard to, to have the wrestling magazines do a lot of stuff. And, uh, and I probably missed the boat there some, because, yeah. uh, we were, I think, uh, if Apter and some of those guys that uh, did those wrestling magazines mm-hmm. had come to Knoxville and seen those six thousand plus people right. and those
0: Coliseums just rocking, they would have been there regularly. You they would have wanted to cut the pie up for themselves. So, and yeah. listen, I think your dad was smart to say, L- "Don't pull the curtain all the way back."
1: Yeah, yeah. Don't shine too bright a light. The way you yeah. always put
0: it. Yeah. Man, I got to keep saying it, Ron. These studcasts are just getting better every week, and I know the listeners and I cannot wait for the next one. Absolutely awesome job this week. All right, Ron has two Facebook sites that are not full. You can become friends on either or both the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Wrestling site, or the Author Ron Fuller Welch site for his new novel, Brutus, and get information there. All you have to do is like and follow Ron on those sites, and you automatically become friends with a legend. At Twitter and Instagram, it's Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 37. Let's mention this again. It is so worth it. The tribute to Danny Hodge has all three-plus hours now available. The legends, Jerry Briscoe, Cowboy Bill Watts, and others make this tribute very special. Only $2.99 for more than three hours of fascinating wrestling history at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. It is absolutely the best deal in wrestling. And the classic old-school Southeastern Continental DVD 5 pack will take you back. It's being called one of the best in wrestling. 60 matches, interviews, Special videos bring back the old days, and they bring them back to life for only $39.99, and that low price includes shipping. Get it now. Go to Ron's website at tnstud.com. Click on Stud Store. That's tnstud.com. Click on Stud Store, and you can own your own piece of wrestling history. Some of Ron's greatest work does not come from the ring. He has a novel that is being compared to one of the greatest books and movies of all time. It's called uh, called Jaws, of course, the movie. Brutus is the book. It's an amazing story with more than 40 reviews that give it a 4.8 out of five stars. And that ain't no shanty job right there. Ron, tell us about what's happening with the big lion story.
1: Well, it's uh, it's really it's, it's remarkable, and uh, you know I'm just I'm blown away by it. You know, you never know uh, when you write something whether it's going to be good or whether it's going to be accepted. And you know, I see these reviews and and talk to people that have bought it, and you know they they when they compare it to Jaws, you can't m- go much better than that. You know, I mean uh, that's one of the greatest books and and, and one of the greatest movies. That, so, you know, I think Brutus may be doing to to the mountains. I hope Brutus doesn't do to the mountains what Jaws did to the ocean. You know? <laughs> and they had people uh, getting out of the water back in the Jaws days. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping business is still going to stay good up there in the Smoky Mountain National Park. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just, <laughs> I, I, I'm really happy with it, Dave. I'm really happy. And uh, and thanks to all those people that have supported me and have, have bought it. And and all the, it's remarkable, the reviews. I read them, uh, it's like, wow. And if you go to uh, Amazon.com, Brutus Novel, uh, and if you want to read those reviews, they're from all over the world. I mean, uh, people have purchased this book from Australia and from uh, Ireland and England and Canada. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's just amazing. So I'm real happy with it. And uh, thanks, everybody out there. If you read old Brutus and you like it, man, tell, tell others about it.
0: Smoky Mountains National Park is the most visited national park in our nation, and we'll leave it up to Ron to destroy that.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> All, right. All right. A ton of fun this week. Where are we riding to next week, Ron?
1: Well, the the next studcast uh, is gonna the today's training is gonna be about that basketball game in St. Louis that uh I'm uh, that caused me to miss my Knoxville show. Okay. Uh so we'll be talking about. Who are some of the other wrestlers that, uh, you know, uh, Sam Mutchie can bring in anybody he wants to? And boy, does he load up this basketball team. He brings in some big old tall dudes, man, in wrestling to go against this, these poor policemen in, <laughs> in St. Louis. It's a pretty bad deal, man. So we're going to talk a little bit about that basketball game, and uh, we'll compare that crowd to the St. Louis games crowd, the one that we did, the basketball game that we did in Knoxville. That we talked about last week, and uh, we talk about, you know, uh, comparing the size of those crowds and the quality of the contestants uh, and, you know, the overall success of those basketball charity events. Uh, we're going to be obviously moving into February in this next one, 1977, and uh, we're going to open February with the semifinals of the Cadillac Tournament. There's only four guys left in it the next week. Uh, Jimmy Golan's got a shot at the Mongolian Stomper Southeastern Championship. And like I said, uh, he, he earned it with his big, big, uh, you know, hanging in there with uh, Nelson more for an hour. Uh, right. He, he, he deserved a Southeastern shot. And uh, and then we're going to get the real beginning of the Steinborn and Gladiator angle. It's been out there for a while. And the TV card, obviously, we're going to talk about the Promotes' February 6th card, the TV itself, the results we'll talk about, and we'll talk about the attendance. Uh, the learning tree question next week is a very appropriate one. And it asks about the Steinborn and gladiator angle that had been dangling as they put it in Southeastern for several weeks. We've, we've just uh, been playing with this for a long, long time here. And, uh, we're going to get down to, uh, really putting these two guys together and see what happens.
0: That's well, going to be pretty awesome. So next week, prepare to expand your cranium. You are going to be stuffed with information, another charity basketball game, this time in St. Louis, as you said, semifinals of the Cadillac tournament, the Mongolian Stomper versus Jimmy Golden, and the Steinborn and Gladiator angle begins to heat up as well. It sounds like another awesome ride next week right here.
1: Yep, we're we're getting awful close, man, uh, to giving away that beautiful Cadillac. And uh, I want to thank everybody out there for being with us today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the ride as always, and uh, and uh, please tell your friends about us. Uh, you know, maybe they'd like to saddle up too. And uh, take care of yourselves, everybody, and others at the same time, and may God bless us all.
0: Well, I was going to use a baseball metaphor. You knocked it out of the park, but I think I'll say you threw it. You threw everything over the top rope. This is David Summers thanking you for listening today and reminding you that Ron Fuller Studcast is a production of the arcadian vanguard podcast network thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast the true story continues next week so full nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the tennessee stud this is david summers saying so long from the great smoky mountains